I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree, a tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray, a tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. That's a poem written by a man named Joyce Kilmer about 101 years ago, as of this past February, for those of you keeping score at home. Uh, as some of you know, I love poetry, usually more free verse, slam, you know, not so much the kind caged into the same strict meter and end rhyme, but this particular one really speaks to me, um, namely those final and famous lines, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. And he has made a few of them, a fact for which I am very grateful. Um, I don't know how much time you personally have spent just checking out the firework displays in the tops of our trees right now, but uh, however much time you've spent, spend some more. I love this time of year. Um, but this creation of gods, these trees are pretty, pretty spectacular all the time, in my opinion. The way these creations of a perfect god, they seem to die every winter, resurrect every spring. The way that you can see thousands of aspens all sharing a common root structure, which outlives any individual tree by up to thousands of years. Or the way that neither concrete nor asphalt nor iron can stop one of these trees when it decides to live after you've buried it with some forgotten strata of civilization. The god who made trees made a whole lot of them once, and he called it Eden a garden of absolute perfection, where for the first and last time in history, all the way up until the present day, that is, everything was as it should be. A tree is thus kind of my simple, symbol, rather, my proof that uh, not all is lost, and there, that there, there is goodness in this world, put there by the God who made Eden for my namesake to walk around in. Me, on the other hand, I can't even make an omelet. Uh, not to that level of perfection. I can't make Eden. I can't make anything resembling that. Whenever I try, it always gets a little jacked up, singe the omelet around the edges, tear it on the fold. Um, silly example? Sure. But in truth, I've never been able to do anything just right. I still try to create good enough on my own, though, and the results are not pretty. It looks like me beating myself up for not having quite the right words for somebody, not sticking the dismount on a conversation, when I get frustrated at myself or other people for just not doing it quite right, whatever that happens to mean. Sometimes it looks like me getting angry and kind of passive-aggressive toward friends or family, those who are close to me, because I just want to force this into being right. And it never works. Only God can make a tree. Not that I have to explain this whole process much. I think all of us go through this in some form, whether it's obvious or not so obvious for you specifically. We try to make things work on our own, and it always does the opposite of what we want. It makes things worse, not better. When I try to rebuild Eden in some way, my garden always ends up full of weeds and spiders and pesticides that choke me and everybody else. As Leonor put it in her last sermon, I can see the color of my soul sometimes, and there are some mighty dark, ugly spots there that I just cannot get out. As the Apostle Paul put it once, who will save me from this body of death? How can we make ourselves 
our relationships, our world right again. Tonight we get to look at a couple of passages in Luke that attempt to answer that question. Maybe together, you know, you and me and God, we can all come up with some answers for this. So let's take a minute to pray and ask him to help us. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you that we can all be here. Um, Thank you that we have access to your word, the words of life. Um, Lord, you are our Savior, and it is to you we turn. Um, Please lead us um, and help me to speak well whatever you want us to hear and to prevent me from saying whatever you don't. We love you. Amen. The passage we'll be looking at tonight is Luke 5, starting in verse 17. Uh, we will have the New International Version up there. Uh, if you prefer your own Bible, a translation, a Bible app, or your incredible memory, you can always pull that out as well. So, verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the, of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. Ah, the Pharisees, our favorite bad guys. That's how we always think of it. But you'll notice here, they were, they were footing it in from all sorts of other towns, just trying to figure out, is this guy the real deal? They're investigating him, presumably with the intent of, if he is the Messiah, following him. And in that sense, they're really not that different than you and me. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. (laughs) I love how matter-of-fact Luke is about this whole thing. Yeah, we unroofed the roof. It's no big deal. Um, So some background info. Houses in first century Palestine, they generally had flat roofs. That's just how it was built. Uh, You might remember Peter in the book of Acts. He goes up on somebody's roof to pray. There's a vision, clean and unclean animals, that whole bit. Um, So, yeah. The top of the house was just a free balcony that came with it. Um, The visions did not come standard, but the balcony did. And so there was usually a staircase along the outside of this house so that you could get up there, or in this case, so the paralyzed man and his four friends, I say four because in Mark 2 we have the same story, but there he mentions the number of guys. Um, So the five of them could go up the staircase, set their friend down, and start bashing away at the roof. Remember, uh, verse 18 tells us, This is a house. Imagine this is your house. You've got an honored guest over, a famous rabbi, a miracle worker, might even be the Messiah himself. And you've got a hundred people over, packing your house to standing room only, a lot of them very important religious leaders. And, you know, you're gathered around listening to this teacher, to the words of life, and some jerk starts ripping a hole in your roof. I picture Jesus standing there preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. A sprinkling of dust and plaster floats down, landing in the hair of the savior of the world. Repent and turn back from your life of sin. Step back now. And this cascade of mud plaster chunks just blast downward. We're like six guys. We're all sitting until right then. Jesus looks up at at the new skylight and sees these four Jewish dudes' faces peering down like, oh, sorry. And Jesus just smiles and goes, come on in. 
Not the most subtle way of entering a building I've ever seen. Uh, and this probably pissed a lot of people off, not least of whom is the owner of that roof that you just broke. I picture a lot of folks in there just picking plaster dust out of their beards, folks who were perfectly happy listening to the best teaching they have ever heard, sitting there comfortably, quite pleased with themselves for getting there early enough to get the good seats. And then these jerks cut to the front of the line, do some property damage, and totally disregard the way proper people are supposed to act. See, in addition to everything else that I've told you about, the things we would call wrong with this way of entering, um, those who were crippled or paralyzed, they were thought of as less than. There was something wrong with them. It was their fault. They were sinners, you see. That was the general understanding. Now, yes, this was true in some cases. Mike mentioned a few last week with the leprosy of King Uzziah or Moses' sister Miriam. But folks started assuming that this was always the case. Uh, check out the start of John 9 sometime for an example of this, where Jesus' disciples bought into this uh, until, of course, he corrected them. People afflicted like this were uh, excluded from the priesthood. They were excluded from uh, full participation in community life in some cases. I think that's part of why the crowd wouldn't part for him, why his friends weren't allowed to carry him in. Social convention, the way things were, that these jerks on the roof are just totally disregarded. And what is Jesus' response? Well, verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. As Mike said last week, putting yourself at the mercy of Jesus is a pretty good place to be. This does not go over with the already pissed off house guests. Verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow that speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo! Step right up. You have won a prize. That is the correct answer, almost. So the Pharisees were really, really close to getting this right. They are correct that only God can forgive sins. This man is claiming to forgive sins. Therefore, one of two things must be true. Either this guy is committing the heinous crime of pretending to be God, or, you know, he is. Minor side note at this point. I've heard a lot of skeptics say, man, this whole Christianity thing is so stupid. You're worshiping a guy who never even claimed to be God in the first place. Yet here we have one of the dozens, if not hundreds of times in Scripture, where Jesus says or does something that was recognized by his audience as nothing but a claim to be God incarnate. Does that by itself prove that Jesus is God? No, of course not. Does that by itself prove that Jesus did claim to be God? Yes. The Pharisees are so close to recognizing Jesus' true identity as God the Son but they miss it because, as will be the case throughout pretty much the entire rest of the life of Jesus, they just can't get around the fact that he offends them so much. I mean, for starters, you know, he just forgave somebody, or claimed to do so, somebody who had not gone through the sacrificial system. That was the way you got forgiven, after all. Who does this guy think he is? Why doesn't this guy care about the way things are the way they are supposed to be. He blatantly disregards all the extra rules that we built up around the law of God. Now, as much as we like to make the Pharisees our narrative whipping boys of the Gospels, they had good reason to care about this. You remember a little thing called the exile? Assyria, Babylon, all that business. We were studying this last year when we looked at the book of Daniel. Back when those huge nations just came in, stormed the place, 
uh, devastated and displaced the nation of Israel for generations. That little bit. Do you remember why that happened? It was because people were not sticking to obedience to God as explained in his law. The Pharisees learned a very good lesson. They just overlearned it as social and political leaders almost always do when reacting to something. They were dead set on having that disobedience to God's law and the awful consequences never happen again. And their determination in this, noble though it was, it made them miss the point. They understood there was a sickness in Israel, but they were convinced that the prescription God had given them, the law, they could just take that, walk away, and they could make things good enough on their own from there. Verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking, which means, by the way, that Jesus can hear your thoughts, FYI, the more you know, and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now, remember, since physical disability was, at the time, thought of as intimately connected with sin, his audience would have thought of this as more or less the same thing, to forgive or to take away illness. Maybe that's why Jesus started the conversation the way he did. Now, the next part is one of my favorite scenes in the entire Bible because it's one of the great examples of what happens when holiness and badassery collide. Jesus asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. And praise be to the God who has that sort of power to save us and the authority to bring healing. Amen? Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. <laughs> yes, you have. This scene reminds me a little bit of John 5, where Jesus heals another man who was paralyzed. Um, that time, uh, he was hanging out near the pool of Bethesda. Except that time, Jesus first asked the guy, do you want to get well? In this passage, he didn't need to ask. The answer was pretty obvious. There determination, these five guys, their faith that Jesus was the only one that could heal them, that spoke much louder than words. And they were willing to go way out of their comfort zone and get a heck of a lot of pushback from people who cared way more about keeping things under control than they did about God's plan for the kingdom of God. Verse 24 here, I think, is key. Um, Jesus tips his hand here, and helpfully... Uh, he just flat out tells us the reason that he's doing something the way he's doing it. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And who does he say this to? To the ones who believe that their knowledge of the teachings of God was sufficient to save them, that they could just take it from there and run with it. Jesus is telling them and us, you can't possibly scratch enough items off your checklist of sins and flaws to be made right with God, to have better relationships with each other, to make this world better. Back then, as it is now, the strength that finally changes you will not be your own. Now the scene shifts, but the way I see it, this is, is another story about the exact same thing in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. 
FYI, Levi's other name is Matthew, kind of like how Peter's other name is Simon. Uh, Levi was his uh, natural-born Jewish name. Matthew was the Greek equivalent. Um, Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Again, very matter-of-fact, something that was a very big deal. Matthew Levi was a tax collector, which meant... What? So what do we know about tax collectors? What do we think of when we hear that in the Bible? Just yell it out. Boo. Greed. What's up? IRS. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Pirate. Good word. Um, yeah, tax collectors, they, they were seen as traitors to Israel, sellouts to Rome. People who were honorless, who loved money enough to price gouge their own people and bow the knee to the occupying empire, not the sort of folks that you really wanted to invite over for Passover dinner. So why would anyone want this crap job? Because it affords certain other interesting opportunities, such as getting filthy rich. Uh, the tax collectors were not you know, the 1% by any means, but I don't think being in the top 5% of the economy is a real big stretch here they could uh, pretty much set their own salary by demanding more than the actual toll as people went by your booth. You were an employee of the largest empire in the ancient world, so there's your job security. And bonus? Question mark? Uh, there was so much stigma attached to this job that getting the job in the first place was not all that hard. You're probably the only applicant right now. But the loneliness, man. Meg told me about a job she once had doing clerical work in a collections firm. And these are some of the most hopeless people that she had ever seen. They were pretty much all alcoholics, chain smokers. They had a competition going on to see who could milk the most money out of people before forcing them into bankruptcy. One of our friends there, who's a pretty decent guy at the start, you know, he had a lot of suicide threats from people from his collection targets. They were at their end of their rope, and he would initially try and talk them down and work with them. After six months or so, the job just ground him down to the point that when they would say, I swear to God, if you call me again, I'm going to shoot myself, they would say, okay, you do that. You call me when you're done. <sighs> Meg got out of there as fast as she possibly could. But these coworkers, they didn't have healthy friends. There was enough stigma attached to that toxic job that they could pretty much only hang out with people who are thought of as, as messed up as they were. Just like it was with tax collectors, or lepers, or paralytics. People who were ostracized and shunned by proper society, including those who were absolutely sure that they were obeying the will of God, that they were forcing the world to be better. Levi here is sitting at his tax booth, just burning another day between him and the day this slow death is finally complete. And he sees a man walk up. It's a rabbi, one of the good people, one of them who's going to give him a look made of piety and daggers. But instead, he opens his mouth and says some words that Levi expected to hear, but to other people, better people, ones who weren't traitors and fools, ones who didn't break everything they touch. Follow me an unearned invitation to a new life of meaning and beauty. And Levi steps outside that booth-shaped anchor, and he walks away. Do you know what happens to people who walk out of their job working for the empire? 
Best case scenario, Levi is never going to work again, not in his field. The fisherman disciples, if we want to look at this in sort of a cynical way, if this whole Jesus thing didn't work out, they could always go back to fishing, could set their sails and cast their nets. Levi, he has landed somewhere new, and he has burned the fleet. He can never go back onto victory or underground. What faith this is. His hope is in Jesus and what Jesus can do, not what he can. Verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And this was Levi's crowd, his old friends, the ones that he wanted to introduce to the one who had just given him a new shot at life. And I think it says an awful lot that at this point, Levi is not bummed that he is, uh, his career is over. <laughs> I mean, let's think about this. Most people would be mourning the loss of a high-paying government job, but Levi, he's rejoicing. He is celebrating the fact that he got to trade something as insignificant as a lifelong career for a life with Jesus. I suppose that this move would have been hailed by a great many of his friends as a terrible idea, as a step backward. He didn't see it that way. He was following. Meanwhile, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, I know. We're so acclimated to the Jesus-ly response to this situation that we forget where the Pharisees were coming from. So I'm going to say it again. It was a good starting point. They had studied the Torah and his teachings on ceremonial uncleanness. They knew how important it was to live a clean and righteous life before God. But they were seeking it the wrong way through their own effort, what they did and didn't do. See, table fellowship, eating with somebody like that was... Um, it was seen as a gesture of unity. You were endorsing or approving the people that you were eating with. Now, the Pharisees did not want to approve of sin. They didn't want to praise this. So by their logic, the best thing to do to make the kingdom of God happen would be not to eat with anybody who didn't have their stuff together, in which case I suspect most Pharisees ate lunch alone. They were trying so hard to create righteousness by their work of adding checks to the checklist to avoid any contamination with sin, as if God needed their help. But that's just not the way it works. They underestimated the power of God to accomplish his will. In verse 31, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is for losers. Thanks be to God. I love his irony there, by the way. <laughs> the righteous. <laughs> yeah, because those people exist. A little while later, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a man, no one is good but God alone. If the righteous existed, if the spiritually healthy existed on their own effort, they wouldn't need a doctor like Jesus. But we do. Because we're not well. I mean, some of us, some of you might have a lot going on for you right now. I mean, the Pharisees did, and that's not a backhanded thing. They, in fact, did. But even if that's true of you right now, you know, we still can't get it all together. We still can't kick our sin addiction. We still can't love people right. Not all the time. 
not the way that God asks of us, the way he deserves from us. There's an icon for hire song I like with the line, I meant it when I said, I want to get well. I want to get well. And I do. I want that. I want that doctor. And that means first admitting that I need one. You know, the great thing about doctors though, it's sort of hidden in a whole forest full of suck. Just a lot of terrible things around that. See, it sucks to admit that you're not as healthy as you should be and that sometimes it's your fault. It sucks to hear that diagnosis and hear what you're going to have to go through, what surgery or exercise regimen or major modifications to your life you're going to have to put in place if you want to seriously get well. And this isn't news to any of you, but surgery friggin' hurts. <laughs> Uh, hopefully not during, if so the anesthesiologist did not do their job, but afterwards, you better believe it. But amid all of this gnarly stuff, the great thing about a doctor like Jesus is he can create health where we just can't. Everything that I've just said about a doctor is true of repentance. Repentance, the reason that Jesus came, according to his own words in verse 32 of this passage. Last time I was up here six weeks ago or so, I talked a lot about this repentance thing. About it, I said, you know, I think we all want to, I think we all want to get healthy. We all want to get well, but we don't want to admit just how sick we are. I called repentance surgery, and this time we get to see that Jesus is the surgeon. That's the point of this Christianity thing, isn't it? We want to get well. We want to see health and restoration for ourselves, for other people in our lives, for our relationships with them and with God, for this world and this broken planet to get better again. We want that. If I was just in this to find a place where I could belong and never be challenged to grow beyond the way I was when I started, I could join a social club. I mean, Jesus and the church... This whole thing, it's not about that. It never has been. I've heard a lot of really bad theology in the last year or two from people who say things like, well, just come just as you are to worship. Jesus loves me just the way I am. That means that, you know, saying I need to change is to say that I know better than God what he wants. What? Really? Have you ever thought that maybe God is more of an animator and less of a sketch artist, that the plans he has for your life might involve motion in a direction, not just a refusal and a stagnation, never growing past the infancy that we all start as? Is that a big challenge? Sure. But it's also real good news, the way I see it, because God is just a better creator of my life than I am. Only God can make a tree. As the poet Kilmer put it, only God can build goodness. But we do like trying. That futility and its opposite, in my opinion, that's what these stories in the life of Jesus are all about. Take the story of Levi. The Pharisees are complaining about the banquet he throws for Jesus and all the riffraff that he invites and Jesus sits with. They're offended because Jesus isn't trying hard enough to keep himself clean the way that they do. Pharisees, they wouldn't touch sinners. They definitely wouldn't eat with sinners. They had constructed this exoskeleton around the law of Moses, around the law of God, this barricade that they thought they could use to keep sin out. Never mind the fact that it kept love out too. 
But one other casualty was change, growth, whatever God wants to do in your life. They had locked things down to the point that there wasn't really any room for God or his leadership in it. Jesus, they might say, why aren't you doing the thing that all good people know is right and quarantining yourself, checking off your list like a good person does? Why aren't you doing your part to force holiness into happening? Because that is not how it works. God, speaking through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, tells us, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We cannot build this on our own. Levi understands this. Blessed are the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, and the fools, because they recognize how far they are from our own standards of goodness, and they stop trying to make things good enough in this world and in their lives on their own and accept the grace of God. Or take the story of the paralytic. He and his friends are refused entry into the crowd, either because it wouldn't be uh, proper for a presumed sinner to be there, or because the crowd loved the social norm of fairness, first come, first served, which is what they mistakenly thought justice meant. They loved that more than they loved mercy. What this man loved was God and this Jesus who came in his name. So he had the holy boldness to scrap social convention, self-conscious dignity, and about 18 square foot of somebody else's roof in pursuit of that which mattered most. God himself and the healing that only he could bring. He did not care what seemed proper by the world's standards, by human traditions, even those by good religious people. He had seen that they by themselves, these rules, were completely powerless to heal and restore, to make things right again. So he stopped trying to rebuild Eden on his own and laid himself at the feet of the God who can make a tree grow and a human spirit bloom. And he was recalled to life. Will we be a generation that tries to work hard enough that we can make a paradise for ourselves or others or God? Will we buy this crumbling, rusted-out myth that the American dream of self-sufficiency has any place in the kingdom of God? This is a question I've been asking myself an awful lot lately. Counseling is a fantastic thing, FYI. And in my own counseling, I've been discovering a lot of this ridiculous up-by-your-own-bootstraps philosophy in me that I didn't think existed anymore. It was invisible to me. But it was still the root cause beneath a lot of depression and anger coming from this frustration. See, I would look at the way things are, and then I would look at the way things should be. And I saw how big a gap there was. The thing was, at that point, my mind went, okay, I can fix this. I mean, with God's help, but I can fix this. See, I've got all these memories of growing up in this great little town in rural Indiana, a place called Tipton. Uh, I've got these memories of a great childhood, great experience with the church, great family life before my mom died. Like, everything was awesome. It was my own personal Eden. Everything made sense. 
Since then, that has not been the case, not by a long shot. And I wanted so much to get that back the way I remember it. The Tipton, Indiana in my head became my hope, my proof that all is not lost and there is still goodness in the world. And I could bring it around again if I could just work a little harder, check more things off the checklist, follow more rules of God's. There's a few obvious problems with that. One is that the myth of man-made happiness became my hope instead of God. Becoming good enough, making this world better, that became an idol. And like every idol, it writes checks with no funds in the bank. I could never work enough to be good enough. I could never make God's kingdom come. I could follow every rule in his book. I could even add some extra guardrails like the Pharisees did. Nothing's going to cut it because only God can make a tree. There's a song by Thrice about getting rid of falsehoods. And as I prayed and asked God to destroy this myth, this idol, that song was playing in my head. I love this city, but I've set and numbered its days. I love this city enough that I'll set it ablaze. And I watched it burn. This toxic, tempting myth that I can be good enough on my own, that I can make this world better under my power without depending fully on the grace of Jesus the Christ. I watched it burn, and from the ashes I watched hope rise like the footfalls of my Savior walking out of a tomb on Easter morning. Give up trying to win on your own terms and your own strength. What myths are you carrying around unaware? What myths, perhaps, is some of the earth church carrying around unaware? The way I was carrying around my myth and false standard of some perfect childhood. Measuring it up to that. Maybe it's that if you want to be a real active Christian, you have to be more poor than rich. Or since I don't think any of us are what we would consider rich, that perhaps middle class savings and investments paradigms, that those are incompatible completely with the kingdom of God. Is that a thing we believe? Or perhaps the opposite of that, that if you want to make a real dent in things, if you want to change the world for God, then you better have the capital to do it. So, you know, cut the crap with your dumpstering and couch surfing, get a real job. Could it be that you have to be single or maybe married but without kids if you want to have any impact on the kingdom outside your front door? Do we believe that? Maybe the opposite of that one, that you're not actually a mature Christian unless you are family-oriented. Could it be that the value that we say we place on community does not have to involve intentionality? That we think we can fulfill the kingdom of God just by hanging out, chatting about pop culture and the newest music, and that if anybody says maybe we should add an extra dimension of going deeper, talking about the real things, now that person is a Pharisee. Do we believe a myth that we have to do everything right? Or more likely for us, honestly, that we have to suck at the things that quote-unquote mainstream churches are proud of doing well? Could it be that we think that we as a community are only living out God's plan for us 
when we act like the good old days, the golden age of scum of the earth church? Do we get freaked out when we're not being weird enough anymore? Cool enough? Enough like things were back in the beginning, which, by the way, I wasn't there for. And as I look around this room, I see a large majority of you who weren't either. Is that just another myth, like my myth of the good old days in my hometown was for me? What is your personal measure of success as a human being and as a Christ follower? And does it depend more on the things that you can do or more on the things that God can do? These myths of a goodness that we can build on our own and on our own terms will distract us, they'll mislead us, they'll draw us away from everything that is truly good. Repent of them, just as I need to continually repent of my myths and idols. Turn away from them and find life more beautiful than anything that you or I could ever build. Do you honestly want the restoration of our great physician, Jesus? Do you really want all things to be made new and beautiful again? Then first, you have to give up. You gotta know, not think, but know that nothing you do apart from God is going to make a dent in this problem of this fallen world and in the dark parts of our own souls. We have to accept that we are not just sick, but terminal without a surgeon as skilled as Jesus before he can heal us. In the story of the paralyzed man, they lowered him through the roof on his mat. They carried him around town on his mat. Where the mat went, the man would follow. He never thought about this. Just common sense. It's just the way things are. We know this. But when Jesus healed him, he told the man, pick up your mat and go home. First the mat carried the man, and then finally the man carried the mat. What are we letting us, what are we letting carry us through life at the whims of our culture or our own expectations? What are we riding around as our own meter stick of success as a follower of God? And what would it like to get off? What would it look like to get off? To sling that over our shoulder and to just walk wherever Jesus leads? Letting that be what success looks like for you now. I encourage you to take some time to think about this as we prepare to receive communion. Communion is both a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, but just as much, at least as much, it's a celebration and remembrance of his humble submission to the Father, that act of giving up that he had to do to achieve that victory, an act that, by the world standards, looked an awful lot like failure and not doing it right. If you're visiting, I don't care about denominations, I don't care about any of that. If you call Jesus, then this communion is for you. I also want to invite you to, to uh, the prayer cave, that little bit over there. Uh, whether you've been following Jesus for decades or whether right now you're just considering it, there'll be some folks back there to pray with you if you would like. The stuff I've been talking about, it may be the hardest thing that you ever do. Don't do it alone. 
talk with somebody, pray with somebody, whether that's right now or whether it's later on. But this is part of God's plan for community. That we give up trying to muscle our way through life on our own and we learn to depend on God and on each other with the big things in life. Pray with me if you would. Father, we confess our imperfection, our brokenness. We confess our inability to make things good enough without depending on you and letting your grace carry us. We ask for your help in crucifying our self-made righteousness, in putting our myths to death so that the real goodness that only you can make can take root in us. Lord Jesus, thank you for living out an example to us of submission to the Father and the victory that we find in that. With this communion, and whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim your death until you come again. 